Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. Since it is Super Bowl Sunday and it is in honor of Super Bowl Sunday that I offer a football illustration from my life. Can you put up with it? It was my senior year in high school. And in that senior year, we were vaulted into a higher classification, the highest classification in the state of Louisiana at the time. It was 4A. And uh, for those of us who were playing football for us in high school that senior year, being positioned up into a higher classification was very demoralizing for two reasons. First of all, by moving us up into that classification, we were now going to be the smallest school in the state of Louisiana in 4A. Most of the schools had bigger senior classes than we had in our entire high school. And not only was that demoralizing, but the district that they moved us into was the most powerful football district in the whole state. For instance, my uh, uh, senior year, we had to play Woodlawn. That was just one of the teams in our district. Now, they had a quarterback by the name of Terry Bradshaw. <laughs> their backup quarterback, their backup quarterback was Joe Ferguson. <laughs> and not only that, our opening game was with the Goliath at that time of Louisiana high school football, Bird High. And uh, that's what we were going to open up with. Now, that was demoralizing. What was worse, down in 3A the year before, we had a losing season. And all of our best players had graduated. So it was going to be a rough year for us. And everybody predicted calamity going into my senior year. In fact, the papers at the start of the season picked us last in our uh, district. And uh, most of the fans in Ruston thought that was being overly optimistic. <laughs> there was only a small group of seniors that thought different. And I've always enjoyed reflecting back on my senior year because of that. You see, the seniors from the year before were a, good, were a good group of athletes, but they lacked a very essential ingredient in athletics. It's called dedication. They taught us as juniors that junior year of mine how to drink, how to party, how to get by with less, and how to lose. And so we decided in our last year, in that summer of 1967, that we would dedicate ourselves to making that next season, in spite of all the odds, different. Now, I want you to know it was all by faith that we took on that step. There were no guarantees that we would be any different than last year in the win-loss column. In fact, maybe even worse. And when Bird High came to town that Friday night with a band bigger than our senior class, last year's conference champions, all we had walking out on that field was faith and a summer of dedication. And I remember one of the greatest moments in my life as an athlete was on Saturday morning, picking up the state paper and opening up to the sports page and seeing our name plastered on the headlines. It had a Batman kind of flavor because Batman was popular back in 1967. And here's what it said. Kapow! <laughs> Rustin Blast Bird. 
And you know, it was a very special moment because in one night we went from being goats to golden boys. We went from being duh to darlings all around the state. Only took one game and it stayed that way all season long. But you know, the biggest victory that season was not in the win-loss column for our high school. It was in the 14 seniors who played both ways all season long. We learned firsthand that life does not always turn on appearances. No matter how formidable the obstacles may be. Much of life, and it was a great lesson to learn as a 17-year-old, much of life, indeed, much of the best of life turns on the axis of two things, faith and dedication. Faith and dedication. Now we're going to look back in Joshua to a 1400 BC story this morning. It's the story of Joshua and the battle of Jericho. You've probably sung that growing up as a child. And it's going to be interesting that that same thing that I just mentioned to you as a high school senior runs through this story as well with similar components. Now I want you to remember as we turn back to this story that uh, this is after a previous senior class that Moses had inherited. He had inherited a, season, a senior class after crossing the Red Sea and despite all the miraculous acts of God through Moses, and if you remember them, they were the plagues that he inflicted through God's power on Egypt, the death angel that passed over, that took the firstborn of the Egyptians, the Red Sea crossing, the manna, the pillar of fire, all that went forth, even the Ten Commandments that they received down in Mount Nebo. That senior class had experienced all that through Moses, and yet that generation, that senior class, saw the wilderness, not the promised land, as their fate. They thought no higher than the desert. They chose to believe what the Egyptians had said to them as they left Egypt. They said to the people of Israel, God is leading you out into the wilderness and he's going to kill you there. And that message was burned into their hearts as they left and they believed it all their life. So they complained when Moses took them all the way to Mount Sinai. And when Moses left them and went up on the mountain at Mount Sinai, they built a golden calf and they partied hard until he came back down. When they arrived at Kadesh Barnea and they sent the 12 spies into the promised land, you remember that the majority report that came back was a report of unbelief because they could still hear that message. God is calling you out to kill you. And so the spies came back and the spies said, the peoples of the land are just too strong. They're too big. They're Dallas cowboy types. We can't win. They're going to beat us. So those seniors resigned themselves to live out their days in the wilderness by fate rather than by faith. Their legacy to their children, those juniors that looked up to them, their legacy to them was, why try? Their record to them was O oh and 40. As in 40 years, they were losers at heart and not once did they personally experience for themselves, personally, what faith 
and dedication can do in the twist of life. Not once. In Psalm 95, it's God himself who writes the epitaph for that senior class. This would have been in their resume, their annual, their yearbook. He said, your fathers tried me through, your fathers tried me though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation. They were a people who err in their heart and therefore I swore in my anger at them, this class shall not enter my rest. They'll never have it. So that generation followed off of Kadesh Barnea up to Mount Nebo and all along the way they fell in the desert. They died. And Moses with them on Mount Nebo. And with his death, a whole new senior class came into being. There was a wholesale turnover. And Joshua became the new captain of the football team. But what's even more important than Joshua for this generation is this junior class now having become the senior class, walked into that senior season with a new attitude. It was the attitude of belief. And you know, you see that belief even as he sends those two spies into the promised land to spout Jericho and they come back. And if you'll notice in your Bible over in chapter 2, Joshua chapter 2 verse 24, it's not Joshua saying anything like Moses always had to to pump them up. It's the spies coming back to pump Joshua up. Now I want you to know, it's what they said to Joshua. And what did they say? Look at verse 24. Surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Now that's faith. And all the inhabitants of the land, moreover, have melted away before us. That's what the spies said. This is a new group with a new attitude. And what you see that follows in chapters 3 through 5 is what I would call a summer of dedication leading up to the big game. And they go through all kinds of steps to make themselves ready for this opening conflict with Jericho. Jericho was their bird high school. Now, I don't have a map behind me. I thought it was going to have a map. Is it? Oh, there it is. Okay. Now, I want you to notice something as you look on that map because they enter from the east side across the Jordan River. You see Gilgal, and then you see a little arrow. It's hard to see, but there's Jericho, and then there's a mountain range. Does everybody see that mountain range? They're coming in from this side. It's like if you were traveling to Fayetteville, there's one mountain pass that you kind of have to get at Alma. Remember, Alma's there, and you drive up 71 to get to Fayetteville. It's the only place, at least was the only place you could get to Fayetteville. If you go to Israel today and you enter from the east side going west, there's one mountain pass, and at the foot of that mountain pass is Jericho. And you have to go through Jericho to go through that mountain range to get to the promised land. So that's where they are. They have to go through Jericho. That's their big game. And they believed what the other senior class wouldn't allow themselves to believe, that they could do it. Now, there's some events that lead up to them taking Jericho. In chapter 3, you'll notice they miraculously cross over that Jordan into the Promised Land, the same way the first group passed through the Red Sea. I want you to look in chapter 3, verse 9 for just a moment. I want to catch you up on the story. We're not going to read all of it, but I want to read parts of it. So follow along with me. Verse 9, it says, Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord, your God. And Joshua said, by this you shall know that the living God is among you 
and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Hivites and the Perizzites and the Girgashites and the Termites and all the rest. <laughs> Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into Jordan. Now look at verse 13. And it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, and the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. And the waters which are flowing down from above shall stand in one heap. In other words, they will part, just like the Red Sea, and you will be able to cross over. And then what follows is this marvelous crossing of the Jordan, which is this miraculous moment as God is infusing this group with power because this group possesses faith and dedication. And so they cross over. And as they cross over in chapter 4, they memorialize this great moment. They don't forget it. They memorialize it by setting up some stones so that they can speak to their children in the future about it. Look at chapter 4, verse 20. It says, In those twelve stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the sons of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel, cross this Jordan on dry ground. Forever you'll be able to say the message that God delivers. God's involved when you're involved. When you take the faith to step out, God is there to support you. And God has given us this land, and He gave it from the very beginning, and these stones remind us of that. In chapter 5, they pause before Jericho, before the battle. They pause for just a moment. And the men of Israel individually, man by man, consecrate themselves to God and His agenda. To God and His agenda. Through the act of circumcision. Now I want to read that to you and let you kind of experience this with them. Look at chapter 5 starting in verse 4. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people, that is the junior class, who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord had sworn that He would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. And their children whom He raised up in their place, Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised, He had not circumcised them along the way. Now it came about when they had finished circumcising all the nation that they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Now I want to stop there and just remind you, the reproach of Egypt was that message that they constantly heard, the message of the Egyptians that said, God is taking you out to kill you. And on this day, which historians say was exactly 40 years since that unbelief, God said, because of your faith, and now being circumcised, taking on my covenant, today I've rolled away that unbelief, that reproach. That's why Gilgal is the Hebrew word 
for rolled away. Now in chapter 6, we move on and Israel comes to Jericho, that city that I said that stood strategically in that mountain pass area, at least at the foot of it, with its double walls that Bill talked about. The first one, a story high. The second one, three stories high with some space in between. So if the enemies got in between those walls, they were so vulnerable. And I've stood in double walls in Israel and seen and felt those, and they're quite formidable. Historians tell us that 17 times before Israel moved on Jericho, Jericho had been under siege by opposing armies, and it had never fallen to those armies. This was an incredible place to take on. And so Israel moves into that moment. Now, in my mind, the win over Jericho that's going to occur in this chapter, because it ends with kapow, Israel blast Jericho. But in my mind, the win over Jericho is more than just an entertaining story for us. It represents one of the preeminent promises of God that is sounded again and again in stories and in messages that are preached by Jesus and in the teachings of the apostles. It's one of the preeminent promises of God. And I want to give it to you. It's this. If you deeply and personally dedicate yourself by faith to God's agenda and you act on that agenda, life, not could be, might be, life will be exciting, fulfilling, and victorious, no matter how formidable the obstacles may appear in your life right now. And I like what Dan prayed, that some of us are here today and we don't feel victorious. So to celebrate and to talk about God's miraculous power, that only discourages us that much more, because we're not sure. Well, I want you to know these people had suffered defeat for 40 years. They weren't sure either. But by faith and by dedication, they stood in front of the city of Jericho. And the message that's going to resound through this passage is that if you will deeply and personally dedicate yourself by faith to God and His agenda, exactly His agenda, and act on that agenda, then life will be exciting. It may be scary, but it'll be exciting. It'll be a ride and fulfilling and victorious. That's God's promise to us. Now, there are a number of people here who believe that in their minds only. But you've never experienced the fulfillment of that promise in any significant way in real life. They've never carried that promise all the way into your own personal Jericho. And everybody's got a Jericho at some place in your life. And you fought the battle by faith and dedication and you've won. There's some people who've never done that, but they believe what I just said. And so that promise, that preeminent promise to them is one of hope, but not one of reality. I want you to know I'm all for hope, but when it comes to facing a real Jericho, I want more than hope, don't you? I want a victory. I want to win. I want to see God do something. And that's the point. And until I get a significant victory in my Christian life, I have not entered the land. I, there's still this mountain range. I'm still wanting to get on the other side, and there's this Jericho, and I'm hearing all about the, the Christian life, but I'm standing there thinking, how am I going to win? But as a Christian, till saying to myself, but God can, 
God could. But you know what? There comes a place where faith has to move beyond the could kind. There has to come a place where when you speak of your faith, there's stones that are stacked up behind your life and you're talking about faith in terms of the did kind. Everybody needs a victory, don't you? Everybody needs a victory now and then. Everybody needs to see God act in some special way according to the, to the dictates that He's given and you've trusted Him and you've won and you say, God has done this. And then it encourages you in the future to look to Him in other troubling times. Maybe there are some of you here who have seen God act in your life in a number of special ways in the past and you've been encouraged by that. But the issue before you now is a lot bigger than you've ever encountered. And so it tends to inspire fear for you, not faith. Perhaps it's a bigger, meaner Jericho of kinds and you've attacked it a couple of times and it's beaten you down. It's gotten the victory over you. I want you to hear me. The story that's before us not only carries a preeminent promise of how to have victory, but I think within this story, embedded in this story, are the steps to victory. They're the same ones that Jesus will talk about 2,000 years later. They're the same ones that Peter and Paul and John will introduce to us in their epistles. There's some steps that have to be followed for victory. We're going to look at those in just a moment. But I want to stop for just a moment because before you start talking about steps to victory, I think it's important for each one of us to ask ourselves a very important question before you start talking about the opponent. You know what the question is? What is your opponent? What is your Jericho? What is that formidable obstacle that keeps you from experiencing the promised land? You can see it. You're already in it, but there's a big mountain range and between initial faith and a vibrant Christian life, there's obstacles and I've got to make it through here. What is your Jericho? Is it your marriage? Could that be your Jericho? Is it a lust that you just can't control? You've tried all by yourself. You've tried over and over and over and over and over again. It just keeps winning. It's a lust you can't control that keeps you from the promised land. Is it something that you want real bad? But yet you know God's word forbids it. And you're so focused there, you can't move forward. Is it a discipline you know you need to embrace in your life and there's this little voice telling you that until you embrace that discipline, you're never going to go through the mountains. You're never going to get to the other side. Your life is always going to stay the same until you embrace that discipline. Is it the past? Is that your Jericho? Is it a fear? Is it your need to control? Is it a failure that you just can't get over? Is it an unfulfilled dream that you thought God was going to give you if you came to Christ and now years later you still don't have it? And there's that unfulfilled dream and it's transformed itself into a Jericho and you can't get past that into the promised land. Is it your pride? The need to always be right and you just can't hear anymore? See, it's so important when you open up the Word of God that you bring yourself to the Scriptures and your issues and your problems and your Jericho. Have you identified what it is? 
My Jericho at this moment is what I call the wall city of balance. My job here at FBC over the last couple of years, really in the last year, has gotten to be a job that never seems to end. All kinds of responsibilities and issues and people's needs and with the growing size of our congregation and my overly responsible side, I have a hard time saying no. So in this last year, I found myself getting out of balance. I've talked to the elders about it. I've talked to my community group about it. With all the good things that we've seen happen here and around me and in our church and all those things, you know, from time to time, rather than feeling victorious, I felt just the opposite. With all the good, I felt some sense of personal defeat in the push, in the pace. Certain disciplines begin to leave my life. Have you felt that before? Certain disciplines leave your life. You overreach, you push too hard, and you're rushing to your family and rushing to your job and rushing to the counseling appointment, rushing to get your message done, and the whole time you're going, I'm doing more and enjoying it less. And, and there's no time just to sit and reflect and think, which is part of the Christian life. And so you become tight and irritable and other people notice it and that only beats you down further. That's my Jericho. And I've assaulted that Jericho a number of times this year. I still haven't gotten through. Still wrestling with it. And in all of that, I have hope because of what I've seen God do in the past. But you know what I need today? Just like what you need. I need a victory. I want to win. But what are the steps? Well, I've been encouraged because I've looked in this passage and there are five real clear steps that stand out. I want to give them to you. First, the first step is what I just call a vision-keeping memory. A vision-keeping memory. In Dostoevsky's classic, The Brothers Karamazov, one of the main characters... Alyosha makes this statement about memory. He says, I want you to understand that there is nothing nobler, stronger, and healthier, and more helpful in life than a good remembrance. You often hear people speak about upbringing and education, but I feel that a beautiful, holy memory can be the most important single thing in our development. And if a person succeeds in the course of his life in collecting many such memories, he will be saved for the rest of his life. And even if we have only one memory, one good memory, it is possible that it will be enough to save us someday. Now I mention that because I want to go back just for a moment to the beginning of the story when Israel left Egypt. And do you remember, as I've told you, that they carried what I think was a single dominant memory. It was not unfortunately that God's promise of the covenant, that he was going to give them this land flowing with milk and honey, it was instead the Egyptians' reproach. If you leave here in all the security of Egypt, even though you're in slavery, but we feed you and we clothe you and we give you a place to live. If you leave here into that wilderness, if you go off on your own, you're going to die. And it seems to me, especially because it's recorded here in Joshua chapter 4, that that echo of the soul undercut every act of obedience, that memory undercut every act of courage that God would call them to perform during those 40 years that they ended up perishing. They kept hearing, you're going to die. You're going to die. 
you're going to die. Every obstacle, the memory of the past undercut, the faith and dedication of the presence. It became a prophecy of death, a self-fulfilling, by the way, prophecy of death that became their dominant wilderness vision and they fulfilled it. They died out there, every one of them. I think the reason that Israel piled up stones after crossing the, jo the Jordan, this new senior class, is it was important to them after listening to the faithlessness of their fathers. It was important to them to set up good memory. Memory that inspired vision and power, specifically that this land is our land. And it's our land because God has promised us that land. And what we need to do is believe and dedicate ourselves to take it. So that no matter what would come up in the future, no matter how many Jerichos and other battles that we're going to see them perform in the weeks to come, they would remember God delivers. God delivers. God delivers. Let me ask you, what is your dominant spiritual memory? What in the heat of battle comes up and whispers in your soul? when you're being confronted with a formidable obstacle in life that threatens to undo you and undo your faith, what comes up in your mind? Was it maybe a friend's word way back when who told you you're a religious nut and you'll get over it someday? Is it something you said to yourself or somebody said to you that if you're a Christian, you're never going to have trouble? So every time you hit one of these roadblocks, you think God somehow has failed you? Is it to escape pain that you thought the Christian life was going to escape all pain and worry? Is it maybe the fact that you thought by using God you could control life? And so every time life gets out of control, it undercuts that message and therefore undercuts your courage and faith and dedication. See, a lot of the Christian life is lived out of memory, just like a lot of life is lived out of memory. Or maybe... You had a much healthier background, so when the heat is on, when you come up against these obstacles, the message that rings in your soul is God is faithful. One of the things that I enjoy about my Christian life that I wish I could give everybody is the single dominant memory that I have from the day I came to Christ is John 10.10. 10. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. No matter how bad the situation, I can hear that. And I believe that. And I believe it today. But that encourages me to move into the situation rather than flee from the situation. A right vision of who God is. A right vision of what God wants to do. What is your single dominant vision that you remember when the heat's on? It's important in the process to victory. Secondly, a second step is holy consecration. I want you to notice that in chapter 5, before Israel drew the sword on Jericho, they put the knife to themselves in circumcision, remember? I want you to listen for just a moment. Cutting off the foreskin of the male sex organ, for those men to do that, now not little babies at the eighth day, but now grown men, was painful and it was deeply personal. Okay? But by that act, each man knew, each man took the time on his own to commit himself to the ownership of God and God's agenda and to mark himself that way for a life 
in an act of consecration. You see, circumcision was a symbol of Israel's covenant with God. And now each man in the nation was personally taking that on for himself and would be marked by it for life. It's like a group of athletes in the summer all coming together and looking each one in the eye and saying, are we going to run those wind sprints? Are we going to show up in August in shape? Are we going to do the weight program? Put it here. Everybody joins hands. They dedicate. They go for it. No guaranteed results. There were no guaranteed results when these men performed this very personal act on themselves. But I want you to know, it wasn't just a physical act. It was a spiritual commitment. It represents an act of holiness, of cutting off the old life. And they all knew that. In fact, in the New Testament, circumcision is always referred to as a spiritual act of cutting off the flesh life of your life. Those old passions, the old life, and accepting a new life from God. That's what they were doing. And, and I think it's pretty obvious. You can't take on circumcision lightly. There's no circumcision light. It was hard. And it was painful. And that's the point. You can never be ready to take on a Jericho until you personally consecrate yourself to God in His agenda in a holy moment of serious commitment. I think that's something that is lacking in many people's lives. They've never understood this very important step. You know, we see Jesus doing that in His own life. He did it several times. But one that immediately comes to mind is when He was at His biggest Jericho, the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to think for just a moment, what did you see Him doing? Did you see Him just simply kind of plotting strategy? No, you see Him sweating bullets. You see Him on His knees wrestling with a commitment to see it through. And it was only after he had taken the time of holy consecration that Jesus himself finally surrendered in a deeper way and was fit for the moment that would come immediately after. He was ready for the moment. But it only came after a moment of holy consecration. And that's the only way he dealt with the battle ahead successfully. May I suggest that the reason... Jerichos in our life defeat us, some of them big, some of them really even minor, is that we have not taken the time to circumcise our hearts. Do you understand what I mean? I'm talking about taking a moment in which you seriously faced whatever that obstacle is, one of those that I mentioned just a moment ago, and you think about it in the privacy of your own heart, and you take that knife and you cut away all the excuses Throw the skin away. You cut away all the irresponsibilities that you've enjoyed that are killing you at this moment. You cut away all the sense that it's not going to be pain-free. You cut it all away and throw it away. So that all that's left is a heart that says, I'm going to do it God's way and I'm not going to stop until I have victory. That's what I mean by holy consecration. It's a moment in which you dedicate yourself to God, no matter what, you're going to see it through. Consecration always precedes conquest. That's very clear here. Thirdly, a third step is receiving what I call a clear word. Now follow me here, because a lot of us get the word way before the other two. It is only after Israel's act of consecration that they were spiritually ready 
to hear what God really wanted him to do. A lot of us run to the Word and we're wanting a quick answer. But it was only after they were really committed to God were they ready to hear from Him. That's why good counsel from the Scriptures that you receive from people and friends and counselors and that thing, that's why so often it fails people. It's nothing wrong with the counsel. It's good counsel. It's biblical counsel. It's the heart that's the problem. It's good counsel falling on stony soil. It's good counsel falling on that which is not ready to receive that counsel because it's not made itself ready to receive that counsel. And that's why it's impotent. As long as it remains, as long as your heart remains uncommitted to the process, it has no power. As long as it's still deliberating, still undecided, still check and balance, weighing how much it's going to cost, no matter how much scripture somebody pours on you, the evil one takes it right away. I want you to look at how the word affected Joshua and the nation after they had consecrated themselves in Joshua chapter 5. Read with me in verse 13. It says, Now it came about, and this is after the consecration, the circumcision. Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho, and probably he was by Jericho looking at the walls, plotting a strategy, asking God. I mean, the normal thing, God told him to take the city, he was going to take the city. But while he was there, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? Because if you're for our adversaries, I'm going to have to fight you. And this man says to him, No, really it's neither. I'm not for you or for against the people of Jericho. What I am is I'm captain of the host of the Lord. i got something to say to you. And I want you to notice where Joshua is at this point in his life. It says, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth, and he bowed down, and he said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? I'm ready. It's the same thing when the angel of the Lord appeared to Mary, that young virgin, and tells her some of the most unbelievable challenges that any woman has ever heard. And she was ready. Remember her last words? Be it done to me, according to thy word. When you think of your situation, is there that kind of highway into your heart? Kind of an expressway, a superhighway that just simply says, whatever you want, whatever the price, however long, I'll do it. That's where Joshua was this moment. Which leads us to the fourth step after you hear that clear word. And that is an exact obedience. By the way, this figure who appeared, I believe, is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. It's Christ who appears several times in the Old Testament. And here's Jesus and He says to Joshua, verse 2 of chapter 6, See, I have given Jericho into your hands with its king and the valiant warriors. And you shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once. You shall do so for six days. Also seven priests shall carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. And then on the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets, and it shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people will shout with a great shout. The wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people will go up every man straight ahead. 
and they'll take the city. Now, let me, let me just have you pause for a moment and let's jump forward 3,400 years. There have been many times that I've talked to a couple struggling in their marriage with a clear statement about what they need to do, not on my authority, but on the Word of God. And in the midst of the difficulty of their situation, they've heard that word and it sounded absolutely stupid. And they've gone, no way. Because they weren't ready to hear it. And I want you to know for a general who's preparing to scale the walls and sacrifice men to take a city that he believes God has given him, and then God finally comes to him and says, listen, this is what I want you to do. Just walk around the city. Okay? Do it every day, one time a day, for six days. Then on the seventh day, do it seven times and shout, and it'll fall down, you'll win. That's exactly how it sounds to a marriage couple when you're trying to reconcile a relationship, saying, you know, you just need to forgive her. Do you see? And a lesser consecrated man would have said, what? What do you want me to do? That sounds crazy. You want us to act like fools? And then shout and the walls are going to come down? Come on. That's what a lesser consecrated man would say hearing the Word of God. But Joshua didn't say that. In fact, starting in verse 6, he carries out in the rest of this chapter the instructions exactly. He didn't add to it. He didn't take away from it. He didn't get impatient on the fourth day and say, you know, we could speed this process up if right now we just go ahead seven times and shout. I like to do that, don't you? I know what to do, but I kind of like to, well, can't we just push it up a few days? He didn't do that. He sticks by the game plan exactly, waiting, waiting, waiting for God to do something. And that leads us to the fifth and last and probably the most difficult step. A step that I call foolish perseverance. I want you to imagine Joshua telling the people, because he didn't tell them the whole game plan, by the way. If you read the chapter, you'll see that. Imagine Joshua telling the people, God is going to give us a great victory. They were already people with a new attitude, so they got excited. They got their swords on, their shields up, their helmets on. And Joshua said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to circle the city. And I bet everybody said, all right, we're going to surround them, then take them. So he says, okay, now go out. Here's the way we're going to go out. Warriors first, priests and ark second, people last. Let's go. They all shouted, everybody pounding each other, just like the guys are going to do in the locker room before they go out on the field. We're going to take this city. So they go out. Joshua says, march around. They march around. And he goes, that's it. Come on home. <laughs> and I bet the people thought, maybe this isn't the right guy. Because that doesn't sound right. Or maybe, maybe he's discovered there was a chink in our circle and he just wants to repair that. He told us we're going to go out the next day. We'll get it then. So they go out the second day, do the same thing, get all excited, adrenaline just squirting through their veins, ready to pull their sword. Joshua said, that's it, come on back. I wonder what Rahab was thinking. Today? Is it today? He says, come home. Six days, he takes them out and does the same thing. And I want you to know, there comes a place where people begin to jump ship when God doesn't deliver by the fifth day. But these people have a new attitude. And you can either jump ship or you can persevere. God doesn't put a time limit. See, Joshua knew the people didn't know. And I can't tell you how long it's going to take for you to get over your habit. 
All I can tell you is follow the steps exactly. And as foolish as it may appear, persevere because God will deliver. God will. And when he does, he will have done things that you didn't know he was up to in that foolish perseverance. You can either jump ship or foolishly persevere. In my 29 years as a Christian, I've seen over and over this truth that God always takes longer to conquer our Jericho than we think is reasonable. And you have to ask yourself the question, why? I can tell you at least from this text two reasons, and from my life two reasons why. That makes sense to me. First, this lengthened obedience refines and strengthens our faith in preparation for bigger battles ahead. Sometimes God wants to stretch us, to make us wait. Why? Because He wants to hurt us? No, because He's making us pliable and usable, because He knows you don't know what lies ahead of your life. And He knows it's going to take a bigger faith in some of those things than it's going to take to win this small battle. That's what He's preparing Israel for, a bigger faith ahead. But then there's a second reason, and that's this. This lengthened obedience in anybody's life serves as a witness that God oftentimes uses to reach other people. Now I want to ask you a hard question. Do you think God wanted to destroy Jericho? Remember, which side are you on? He asked the angel of the Lord, Christ. Us or them? Neither. Peter says it in 2 Peter 3, 9, it's not God's will that any should perish. So what was going on when they circled the walls day after day? You know, I want you to know, as evil as these people were, these Canaanites in Jericho, and they were evil. Let me tell you, they were really evil. If you read the ancient literature, if you've been to Israel and been to museums and things and seen Canaanite figurines, they are so obscene that it puts showgirls to shame. I want you to know that. You can hardly look at them. They are so sexually explicit. And of a culture... They were considered the most debased culture in all of ancient literature. They were rotten to the core. And yet, in spite of all that, here's God sending the army out to march around and just stand there with the ark. And do you think that these people had no understanding of the God of Israel? Sure they did. Rahab did. In fact, Rahab tells us that since the time they left and walked through the Red Sea, they understood about the God of Israel. They knew the God of Israel was a miraculous God, an all-powerful God. He had conquered the Egyptians. They knew about His victories in the desert. They knew about what He had done, that He was a God of purity. I think they also knew that He was a God of mercy. And that's why Rahab took her chance. They knew all about that. But I want you to know what they wouldn't do. They wouldn't repent. And had they repented like Nineveh of, jo of Jonah fame, had they let down the drawbridge and said, come on in, we believe in the God of Israel, I think God would have spared that city in a moment. But unfortunately, they didn't. So on the seventh day, Israel experienced this supernatural victory in keeping with the steps to victory. Look in verse six, um, chapter 6, verse 20. It says, so the people shouted and the priest blew the trumpets and it came about that when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, People shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat. The people went into the city, every man ahead, and they took the city. And look at verse 24, and they burned the city with fire. Now, is that just a story? I want you to know it's not just a story. It's absolute truth. 
I love the fact that several years ago I picked up a Time magazine, March 5th, 1990, in the science section, and it was entitled, Score One for the Bible. Here's what it said. It is the most dramatic event chronicled in the Old Testament, but for generations, scholars have debated whether the Israelites' assault on Jericho was fact or myth. Over the past three decades, the consensus has gone against the biblical version. In fact, the late British archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon established in the 1950s that while the ancient city was indeed destroyed, it happened around 1550 B.C., 150 years before Joshua showed up. But archaeologist Bryant Wood, writing in March-April issue of Biblical Archaeological Review, claims that Kenyon was wrong. Based on a reevaluation of her research, which was published in detail, Wood says that the city walls could have come tumbling down at just the right time. Kenyon's dating of Jericho's destruction was based largely on the fact that she failed to find a type of decorative pottery imported from Cyprus that was po popular in the region around 1400 B.C. Its absence, she reasoned, meant that the city had long since been abandoned. But Wood, an ancient pottery expert, now at the University of Toronto, argues that Kenyon's excavations were made in a pure, poor part of the city where the expensive imported pottery would have been absent for any reason. And he says that other pottery found by Kenyon in Jericho in the 1930s was common in 1400 B.C. With the disputed dating now resolved, all of Kenyon's discoveries at Jericho are largely consistent with the biblical story. Here's what she found. She found that the city walls had fallen in a sudden collapse. Many scholars think the destruction was caused by an earthquake. Kenyon moreover found bushels of grain on the site. That is consistent with the Bible's assertion that Jericho was conquered quickly. If the city had capitulated after a long siege, the grain would have been used up. And then there was the thick layer of soot at the site, which according to radioactive carbon-14 dating, when tested, was laid down and found to be 1400 B.C., which supports the biblical idea that the city was burned, not simply conquered. Says Wood, it looks to me as though the biblical story is absolutely correct. Many of you here today desperately need a spiritual victory as real as real as the fall of Jericho is real. You need a win over your Jericho. And the question is, how do you get that win and where do you start? Well, I want to point us back to step number two. This morning, here, the step of holy consecration. Because I'm convinced that until this step takes place, any other thing you do in your Christian life to conquer your Jericho is hollow. Until there's a sacred commitment of the heart that says to God, I'm yours, when you just think it through. I'm going to follow your plan. I'm going to stay with it no matter what. Till that's there, there is no real fall of the enemies in your life. And I say that because I have a question. If that is a great place to start, why not this morning? And why not here? Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.